Well, about five and a half years ago, Alyssa and I had just been married a few months. We were living in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, and the job that I had in Louisville had ended. So we were actively seeking the Lord's will for what ought to be our next step in life. And in that journey, I found myself in Fort Worth, Texas, leading worship for an event hosted by the senior pastor of Rocky Point Baptist Church. Uh, There were three of the elders of the church. There were three or four members of the church there. uh, Because as part of this process of seeking the Lord, I was beginning to have conversations with this church about whether or not God might have me come here to be the next staff pastor uh, on, tr- uh, on the staff of, of, of this church. And at that event, there was a pastor friend of mine who happened to be in attendance, and uh, we got to talking, and I kind of shared with him things that were going on, shared with him kind of why, why I was there and some of the conversations that were being had about this possible job opportunity, and just telling him, yeah, you know, this we're kind of early in this process. I'm not sure if this is God's will. You know, there's some other things that might the Lord might be directing. I'm not really sure, trying to figure this out. I'm just praying a lot, trying to seek the Lord's will. And he kind of looked at me knowingly like, oh, yeah, I, boy, I've been where you've been. You know what? I, I bet you're praying for clarity. And I was like, oh, man, like you, you know me. You see me. You understand. Yes, I'm praying for clarity. I would love uh, for the Lord to give me clarity. And would you please pray for me for clarity? And he said, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I remember being in that position, and I, I used to pray for clarity. But then I realized that what the Lord was really wanting for me was that I would just trust him. And I said, why did you have to go and say that? Because <laughs> I knew he was right. <laughs> like, I, but, but I want clarity. <laughs> I, I don't want to just trust the Lord. I want clarity. I want to know what path I should take. And Well, all that to say, again, he was right. And the lesson I learned that day is that sometimes I think I'm looking to God for courage and confidence when really I'm looking for God to give me something else that then I would have courage and confidence in. In that case, I was looking for God to give me clarity so I could put my trust in clarity. I was looking for courage and confidence in that rather than looking for courage and confidence by just trusting God. This is a lesson that the Lord began teaching me then. It's a lesson I'm still learning. Uh, I mean, Doug Barry will tell, me, will tell you we had a conversation this week where I was like, you know, I would just be confident if I knew exactly what I should say and exactly what I should do. Doug counseled me just like my friend uh, five or six years ago. So what about you? When you're in a situation where you're in over your head, where do you turn for courage and confidence. Can you have courage and confidence when there's no other human to rely on? Or can you only have courage and confidence if you have a a person with you? 
Can you have courage and confidence when you mess up? Or is your courage and confidence dependent on you handling a situation perfectly and controlling all the knobs and levers? Can you have courage and confidence even when there's people out there who believe something false about you? Or must everyone think well of you if you're going to have courage and confidence? Can you have courage and confidence even when you are in agony and pain? Or are you waiting for relief before you can have courage and confidence? Well, David wrote Psalm 31 to encourage the people of God to find courage and confidence in God alone, no matter what they face. In the psalm, David explains things that he had faced, things that he was facing in this moment, and he gives this testimony to the people of God, to the choir master, to lead the people of God in this singing so that they would be led to find courage and confidence in God himself and in God alone, no matter what. It's my encouragement to all of us today is to find courage and confidence in God alone. How do we do that? I think the psalm answers that question three ways. First, we entrust our souls to a faithful God. Second, we bring our struggles to a gracious God. And then finally, we find our strength in a generous God. We'll see each of those as we walk through Psalm 31. First of all, how can we find courage and confidence in God alone? Entrust your soul to a faithful God. Entrust your soul to a faithful God. In the opening verses of Psalm 31, David proclaims his trust in Yahweh, his God. Who is this God that David trusts? Who is this God that we are invited to trust? We'll look at verses 1 and 2. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Who is this God that we trust? Well, first, he is Yahweh. When you see that word LORD in all caps, it's standing in for the name Yahweh, the personal name of the God of Israel, the name that he reveals to his covenant people. It represents so much about his commitment to his covenant people. The God that we are called to trust is not just some God out there that we have to introduce ourselves to. The God that we trust is the God who has set his love on his people. He's not just some God. He is our God if we are in Christ. Yahweh. He is the God who is able to protect us from shame. David expresses his trust by calling on Yahweh never to put him to shame. David is banking on the fact that if he places his trust in Yahweh, it will not end with regret. It will not end with shame. He will not end looking like a fool for having placed his confidence in Yahweh and not some other God. God, Yahweh, will protect him from shame. This God is also a righteous God. David counts on Yahweh being able to deliver him because of his righteousness. 
Again, he is a God who has made promises. And because he is righteous, we can trust that he was not lying. We can trust that he will not flake out. We can trust that he is righteous to keep his word. This is the God that David placed his trust in. This is the God that we are invited to place our trust in. A, a God who is personal. A God who is, who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. A reliable refuge. Let's continue on in verses 3 and 4. Uh, for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Uh, the God David calls us to trust in, the God that he trusts in by example, is a God who leads and guides his people. You might hear an echo of Psalm 23 in these verses. Uh, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And here again, it's for the sake of his name that he leads and guides. And again, we see in this word name that Yahweh's reputation is on the line. Uh, that's how much he has at stake when he commits himself to his people. And so David and uh, we can have confidence in Yahweh because he has placed his very reputation on the line. He will come through for his namesake because he has committed himself to his people. He's the God also who is able to protect his people from the enemy's schemes. He's the one who's able to take, uh, no matter how uh, the enemies might conspire, no matter what sort of traps that they might hide for God's people, he is a refuge who is able to take us out of the schemes that the enemies uh, lay out for us. This is the God that we can trust in. This is the God that David trusts in. Well, so what does it look like to trust this God. Look at verse 5. David says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me. Oh Lord, faithful God. What it looks like to trust this God is to trust him with your very life. He entrusts his soul to this God. And again, David, by proclaiming this, is setting an example that he wanted his people to follow. And this is an example that ultimately Jesus would follow. In Luke 23, 46, Luke records Jesus' last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he bowed his head and breathed his last Trust him with your very life. And then look at verse 6 as well. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. If we are to trust in the Lord, it must mean that we trust in nothing else. Nothing else. We either trust him and his covenant love, his promises, or we trust in something else. We, we can't have it both ways. Uh, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. We can't have some of our eggs in the basket of the, the one true creator God and some of our eggs in baskets of other forms of refuge. If our trust is anywhere else, it is not at all in 
God. It is all or nothing. We must trust in nothing else. Uh, Jonah, the prophet, would later go on to pick up this idea, and he says that those who pay regard to vain idols, to worthless, empty, false gods, forsake their hope of steadfast love. If we run to any other source of refuge, we are surrendering God's promise-keeping love. We are saying no. We are declining God's faithfulness. We must trust in Him and nothing else. And look at verses 7 and 8. David says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Uh, David expresses his trust in this faithful God by rejoicing in how this God has demonstrated his steadfast love. Unlike those who forsake the hope of steadfast love, David is all in on God's steadfast love, his promise-keeping, faithful love. Do you see in this that David celebrates the fact that God has seen his affliction? Do you know that when you are in affliction that God sees you? David says, you have known the distress of my soul. Do you know that God knows your distress? This is the faithful God that we entrust our souls to. As David expresses here, he, he has already demonstrated his faithfulness in the past. And David brings that to remind for confidence in the present. As we'll see in a minute, uh, David is in distress. He is in uh, a suffering as he writes this psalm. But even as he's in the suffering, he thinks back to how Yahweh has demonstrated his faithfulness and steadfast love so that he can fuel his faith and confidence in the Lord in the present. So when you, when you are seeking to entrust your soul to a faithful God in the midst of the problems you face, remind yourself of who this God is. Remind yourself of who God is in your suffering. Remind yourself of His covenant, His promises to His people. Remind yourself of His righteousness, His perfect character. Remind yourself of His power, His ability to do anything. Remind yourself of His love for His people Remind yourself of his faithfulness in the past. How he has demonstrated over and over to you that he comes through, that he loves you, that he has your best in mind. And, and for all of that, to remember who he is, what he has done, look no further than the cross. Remind yourself of how he demonstrated his love and his holiness and his righteousness and his faithfulness in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if he demonstrated that in the past, you can entrust him with your soul in the present. He is a faithful God. Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our God is faithful. 
So to fuel your trust in him, remind yourself of who God is in your suffering. And again, trust him and trust nothing else. Trust in him alone. A good diagnostic tool for you to use when you're in a crisis to find out where your courage and confidence are. Uh, Just finish this sentence. I can sleep tonight if I can stop worrying if I can have confidence if Finish that sentence and then take however you finish that sentence and if you trace it back, you will find what you're turning to for refuge. You will find what you are counting on to give you courage and confidence. And if, if you answer that, finish that question, you find that you are finding your confidence and your refuge in anything other than the one true creator God, then that will end in shame for you. You know how David prays, let me not be put to shame? If your refuge, if your trust is in a false God, is in any other source of protection, the way that ends is in shame. You are going to be found to have been foolish for trusting that false God. You are going to to find that that false source of refuge was not as reliable as you thought, was not as satisfying as you thought, didn't actually give you the courage and the confidence you thought, like a dog chasing a car finally gets it and it's not everything he dreamed of. That's how it is when you run after false gods. But if you answer those questions, finding your refuge in the one true and living God, you will never be put to shame. You will never be let down. In fact, you will be blessed beyond what you can imagine. The only answer to those questions that doesn't end in shame is, I can sleep tonight if the faithful God is my rock and my fortress. I can stop worrying if the God and Redeemer of my soul is on the throne of the universe. I can have confidence if the God who sent his son is in control of the days of my life. Remind yourself of who this God is. Trust him and nothing else. Entrust your soul to a faithful God. Second, bring your struggle to a gracious God. Bring your struggle to a gracious God. This is Another way we can have confidence and courage in God alone. We see that that's what David does next in verses 9 through 18. He brings his struggle to this gracious God. First, he he presents his distress. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Present your distress to God. Uh, For David, his, his distress was personal. He had this grief in his inner man. He he was uh, he was uh, he was burdened and weighed down by sorrow. But not only was his distress 
internal and spiritual. It was also taking a physical toll on his body. He experienced physical suffering. And not only was he he experiencing just sorrow from affliction, he, he describes that he was weak from his own sin. He had a personal distress that he was bringing to God. But he also had an interpersonal distress that he was bringing to God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. So people see David in his affliction, and they distance themselves from him. They don't run close to him to his aid. They run away from him, fearing for themselves. Uh, he feels discarded, forgotten, like he's no longer useful to the people in his life, and so they neglect him. Uh, and that's the people who are close to him. The people who are not trying to take his life. Yet on to that verse 13. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me. As they plot to take my life. He's surrounded by enemies trying to kill him. So this distress he presents is personal and it's interpersonal. It's spiritual and it's physical. It's from suffering and sin. It's from friend and foe. And he brings it all to the Lord. He presents his distress to this God, and then he presents his requests to this God. In verses 14 and 15, he requests rescue. He says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. He turns to Yahweh because Yahweh is the Lord of the days of his life. He is the one who has numbered his days and holds them in his hands. And so he turns to him because he is the only one able to rescue his life. He proclaims uh, in in, in, uh, the earlier part of Psalm 31, he proclaimed Yahweh as the Redeemer. And now, here in this part of the psalm, he asks Yahweh to act accordingly. So he proclaims him as the Redeemer, the one who's able to rescue, and here he's asking him to act accordingly. Then in verse 16, he asks for favor. He says in verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. He he prays a prayer like uh, the blessing that Aaron was commanded to pray in Numbers 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. It's a a prayer for favor. And what we've seen already is that earlier in Psalm 31, David proclaimed Yahweh as faithful, and now he is asking him to act accordingly, to show his steadfast love, his favor to those he has promised to show And then in verse uh, 17, he prays for protection from shame. He says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. 
notice that as he's contrasting himself with the wicked, it's not because he says he's better than the wicked. It's because the thing that sets him apart is that he calls on Yahweh. That's why he is asking to be treated differently, because he is entrusting his soul to Yahweh. We saw, again, earlier in the psalm, David proclaims Yahweh as the one able to protect him from shame. And here, as he's making his requests, he's asking Yahweh to act accordingly. Then his his final request is in verse 18. He asks Yahweh to silence the wicked. He says, let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Again, earlier in the psalm, he proclaims Yahweh as the one who's able to deliver him out of the hand of the enemy. And here, as he's making his request, he's asking Yahweh to act accordingly. He presents his distress to Yahweh. He presents his requests to Yahweh. He brings his struggle to this gracious God. No matter what you are going through, no matter what you are going through, you can bring it to the gracious God. God, whether your struggle is personal or interpersonal, whether it's physical or spiritual, whether it's with friend or foe, whether it's as a result of the sin of others or the result of your own sin, you can find grace for it all in the Creator God. Thinking about David, and as he describes his suffering you know he he mentions in verse 10 my strength fails because of my iniquity and and we don't know exactly the extent of the relationship between his sin and his suffering Um, it it could be as much as just one more item on the list of the things that he's struggling with or it could be that his iniquity he sees as the cause of everything that he's experiencing in terms of his suffering Uh, but as we observe that i want to encourage you with something When you are suffering, on the one hand, don't forget, when you're suffering, don't forget to examine your heart for sin as well. On the other hand, when you are examining and aware of your sin, don't assume that your sin is the cause of all of your suffering. Let me say that again. When you're suffering... Don't forget to also examine your heart for sin. But on the other hand, when you're aware of your sin, don't assume that your sin is the cause of all your suffering. What we learn in Scripture is that our problems that we experience in life can be basically categorized into two buckets, sin and suffering. Our sin and the suffering that we experience. Sin that we're responsible for, suffering that we are not responsible for, we're just uh, suffering from. But as we understand that there is sin and there is suffering, it's easy to think that what we're dealing with must be only one or the other. In suffering, it's easy to start thinking, well, I'm struggling because of things that are out of my control. I'm a victim. I'm not part of the problem. When we're aware of our sin, it's easy to think, I'm a sinner And all this bad stuff happening to me is just all my fault. I deserve it. I'm the only one to blame. But both of those are extreme and not necessarily reflective of what truly is happening in your situation. So in your your suffering, in your struggle, 
uh, examine your heart for sin. You know, David, despite his great suffering at the hands of his enemies, David was not blind to how his own sin was complicating matters and contributing to his suffering. In suffering, check your heart. Is your struggle worse because of how you are responding sinfully to the suffering in your life? Now, repenting of that sin, just to warn you, repenting of that sin will not stop all the suffering. But repenting is the first step toward experiencing joy in the Lord even when the suffering doesn't stop. So examine your heart for sin even in the midst of your suffering. Um, but, but also, even as you're aware of your sin, don't be afraid to be honest about suffering. David admitted his sin, but he also saw clearly that others were responsible for their actions. So don't burden yourself with that, which, uh, with that for which you are not responsible. Instead of bearing that burden yourself, and trying to take responsibility for something you aren't responsible for, take it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord and let Him lighten your load as you bring your struggle to Him. And one last thought on, on this idea of, of bringing your struggle to the Lord. What we see in David's example is something that we ought to follow, and that is make requests in line with God's character. I tried to show you as we walked through those verses that all the requests David was making uh, we're, we're, we're hearkening back to ideas that we saw earlier in the psalm of, of who God is, that this God is that he's trusting in as his refuge. David sets this example for us that we ought to make requests in line with who God has revealed himself to be. This is, this is why Jesus taught us to pray in his name. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, uh, not because the words in Jesus' name are magic words that we sprinkle on our prayers like fairy dust to make all of our dreams come true. No, in Jesus' name is an idea. It's, it's, it's a concept. It, it, it's an attitude of the heart that what we want to pray for, what Jesus instructs us to pray for, is to, to pray in line with his will, his character, what he wants and so like David, we ought to make requests in line with God's character and who he's revealed himself to be. If you're looking for a practical tip on how to do that, uh, start with praying scripture. If you pray the words of scripture, you are going to be praying inspired and errant words. Uh, one of the things that uh, we, we seek to demonstrate even in our time of corporate prayer is what it looks like to pray scripture and to take God's word and uh, take God's words to us and turn it back to our words to God. Uh, Praying scripture guides us in not just asking for what we want, although Jesus invites us to do that. Praying scripture invites us or guides us in also asking for what God wants that maybe isn't always top of mind in our suffering and in our struggle. In all of this, let's bring our struggle to a gracious God as we seek to find courage and confidence in Him alone. Finally, as we seek courage and confidence in him. Find your strength in a generous God. Find your strength in a generous God. Starting at verse 19 and to the end of the psalm, David ends with praise and thanksgiving. First in verses 19 and 20, he celebrates God's goodness. 
to his people. He says, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who, have, who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. God has goodness stored up, ready to be lavished upon his people. God has been good to you. I know. That isn't even the beginning of his goodness to you. He has goodness that you have not yet experienced, stored up, ready to be poured out on you. That's how generous this God is in Christ. And his generosity, his grace, his abundant goodness to his people in their distress as they seek him as their refuge is a testimony to the watching world. You see that in verse 19. He says, in the sight of the children of mankind. God shows his goodness. Again, his name is on the line. His reputation is on the line. And we can count on the fact that God is going to come through for his name and show off his grace and generosity to his people before the eyes of a watching world. Men may conspire, but Yahweh protects his people. Men may accuse, but Yahweh shelters his own. This is God's goodness to his people. As David continues in this line of praise and thanksgiving, he, he speaks more personally in verses 21 and 22 and says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Again, as we've already seen in the psalm, David reflects on the past for confidence in the present. He had thought that God had abandoned him, but the faithful God, the righteous God, Yahweh, who makes a covenant with a people and sets his steadfast love on his people, that God came through for him. Even when he thought he was cut off, God did not stop loving him. The faithful God heard David and showed him the mercy that he had committed to show him for his name in love to his people. And so in light of all this, David ends with a call to worship in verses 23 and 24. He says, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. He calls to the saints to, to love Yahweh, to love the Lord, because he is the one who preserves the faithful. He preserves those who have faith in him. He preserves the ones who trust him. When you entrust your soul to Yahweh, he will preserve you. He calls on the saints to love Yahweh, love this God, even as he is speaking 
as one whose enemies are after him. His enemies are conspiring against him. The reason we can entrust our souls and love this God is because he is the one who will repay the one who acts in pride. He will repay the enemies of God's people. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to fret because of evildoers. We can show our trust and faith in God alone. And in the midst of everything we face, we can be strong and courageous because of this God. This final encouragement reminds us of Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. And so as David comes to this conclusion in the psalm, uh, calling the saints to worship, uh, because of how God has proved himself to David, because of David's personal testimony, because of God's faithfulness demonstrated in the life of David, he is saying the people of God can trust him too. We, those who have trusted in the Lord, who have been saved by his grace, we can trust this God that has come through for David. We can find strength. We can find courage and confidence. Uh, he, he, he describes the people of God who are, who are waiting on Yahweh, trusting in him to come through. And as David describes the people of God who are waiting on Yahweh, David wants them to know, he wants us to know, we are not waiting in vain. This is a faithful God, a righteous God, a God who is worthy and who we can trust in to find courage and confidence. We can be strong because of the abundant goodness God has stored up for those who are in Christ. We can find strength because of the generosity that God has shown us in Christ. We can be courageous because of how he delivered Jesus from death, just like the people of God in David's day could be courageous because of how he delivered the king David. God has proven over and over that he is faithful, and so we do not wait in vain. He will preserve us through faith in him. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We began our service today with a portion of this passage. And I want to read those verses again and, and read a little further. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, think goodness stored up, inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded, think fortress, think refuge, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested 
genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Love the Lord, all you saints. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God has goodness stored up, waiting for his people. Those who trust in him will not be put to shame. Because of the goodness God has stored up for those in Christ, we can find courage in Him even as we wait. Even as we suffer. Even as we endure. We can find courage and confidence in God. So find your courage and confidence in God alone. Entrust your soul to Him. Bring your struggle to Him and find strength in Him. He has demonstrated over and over and over His faithfulness, His graciousness, His generosity. He has proven that He is a reliable refuge that we can trust in. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come to the ultimate reminder of God's faithfulness to keep his promise. We come to the ultimate demonstration of his righteousness, his ultimate demonstration of steadfast love, his ultimate demonstration of deliverance. And as we partake of bread that represents the body of Christ broken for us and a cup that represents the blood of Christ shed for us, we partake of those things symbolizing our trust in Christ alone. Symbolizing that the one who has nail prints in his hands is the one we are trusting in for refuge. The lamb who was slain is the one we are finding our confidence in and our courage in. And our confidence and our courage doesn't come from our clarity or, or us having our arms wrapped around a situation. Our confidence and courage doesn't come from people speaking well of us. Our confidence and courage doesn't come from our, our suffering being relieved. Our confidence and courage comes from a cross and an empty tomb. That's where our confidence and courage comes from. It's an assurance to us that there is goodness purchased by Jesus, not by us waiting for us in him because we have a generous God who has proven his generosity and his love by giving his own son. And so today, if you are entrusting your soul to this faithful creator, we want to invite you to come to this table. Be reminded of what Christ has done for you to purchase God's everlasting, never-ending, abundant goodness stored up for you. Uh, this is a meal for those who have trusted in Christ. 
to save them from their sins. And so if you've not yet come to the point in your life where you've trusted in Jesus alone to save you from your sins, we would ask you not to partake in this meal, but instead to consider uh, what you've heard today. Consider the God that we have proclaimed. Consider the work of Christ, his death in the place of sinners as a substitute that is able to save you and reconcile you to God. And use this time to to, to consider and, and to offer your life to this God. And uh, we would invite you to come to the table after uh, you have um, professed your faith in Christ and trusted in Him. Uh, also, if, uh, if, you, if you would call yourself a Christian, but uh, if you're living in, in unrepentant sin or, or living in a, an unreconciled relationship that, that you're not willing to reconcile, uh, we would also ask you to um, not partake today. Uh, not because you have to be worthy enough to partake of this table, uh, but because holding on to bitterness, holding on to unrepentant sins, uh, shows that, um, uh, that we are not trusting in Christ alone. And this is, uh, as we profess our faith in Christ at the Lord's table, uh, the statement that we want to make is that we're trusting Christ alone. And so instead of partaking in the Lord's Supper this morning, I just ask you to take this time uh, to repent, take this time to even take a step in this moment to reconcile uh, the broken relationship. Uh, and, and instead of coming to the table, uh, let the power of the cross and the power of the gospel transform your heart and your relationship even this morning as you seek to worship through repentance. Uh, but again, uh, if, if you have trusted in Christ alone uh, for your salvation, if you have, have given all to him and trusted him to, to save you of your sin and, and you're living in that, that repentance, uh, we would invite you to come to the table and celebrate uh, what Jesus has done, his finished work on the cross. Uh, so in a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to have a song. And uh, during that time, you can come up and um, receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and, um, and then you can, um, we'll all partake together um, after we've, uh, we've had a chance to all be served. Let's pray together. Father, you are a gracious God, a generous God, a faithful God. And Lord, we want to trust in you alone. As we come to the table now, Lord, we come in an act of faith. Lord, we, we come reminding our own hearts of the source of our confidence and courage. We come reminding our own hearts to trust in you alone because you are the God who did not spare your own son. Lord, I pray that each one of us who partakes of the Lord's Supper today would have our hearts encouraged by the gospel, encouraged by the death of Christ in our place, encouraged by the example Christ set for us of suffering and entrusting his soul to you. I pray that we'd be reminded of what he has done to save us from our sins and to secure for us an inheritance that we will enjoy in your presence forever. Lord, be honored as we continue in our worship. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's all stand together and sing uh, one last verse as we celebrate what Christ has done uh, and how it, uh, how it is demonstrated in the body of Christ. David's words from Psalm 31, 24, send us out today. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You are sent.